Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? And we are super excited to invite Brian S. Bentley into the show with us today. Brian is a former LAPD officer and author of One Time, the story of a South Los Angeles police officer and honor without integrity. So mouthful. Welcome, Brian. So happy to have you. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So we're going to get right into it because there's a lot to talk about. As Susie said, we kind of did a, um, a search yesterday and found all things Brian. Super interesting. We saw some interviews you were on and, and you're, you're awesome, Brian. I have to say, I have a lot of respect for you. Thank you. Thank you. So the first thing we wanted to do, we just kind of wanted to go back a little bit and figure out who Brian was. Who were you growing up and when did you know you wanted to be a police officer? Well, I grew up in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, a native Los Angeles. Most of my family is here. And um, I started off working. I went to college, went to Cal State LA, graduated from Cal State LA, wanted to be a businessman. I worked at Security Pacific Bank. I don't know if you guys, uh, you know, are that old, but I was yeah. a assistant manager at Security Pacific Bank. And uh, I wanted to work in my community. My parents always instilled that, you know, we work in the community and help the community. So I worked at the Security Pacific Bank on 29th and Crenshaw. That bank was always getting robbed. Okay. People were getting robbed in the parking lot. And I had the opportunity to talk to police officers. And a lot of them encouraged me to go into law enforcement. But, um, you know, it was I didn't do it immediately. For those who are familiar with banking, about that time, that was about 1988, banking went through this deregulation. And um, they were bringing banks over from the East Coast to the West Coast. And they were laying off managers. So I started looking for another job and I went down to uh, the city, to city hall and I saw, applied for a bunch of jobs and I saw this poster, this black police mm -hmm. officer in a suit and tie with a badge on. And I said, Hey, you know, that's, let me just try that. You know, let me just, that seems pretty cool. You know, and I've heard so much about LAPD and I went ahead and applied, uh, applied and um, you know, just one thing led to another and, and uh, you know, I became a police officer. And so what was your goal? It, when, when you, you said, you, I get the motivation. It was, you know, you saw these robberies happening. You wanted to work in your community. And then, so what was your goal in going in? Did you have a set goal in mind? I did have a set goal. And, and it's, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because what was ironic is that my goal going in was to try to uh, bridge the gap between the community. I know police were needed. I wanted to be one of the good police officers. And, um, you know, I have family members who have been arrested, family members who were gang members. And they always, you know, had these horror stories about LAPD. Mm -hmm. And I was never really involved with uh, any interaction with LAPD. So I thought they were good and wholesome. But I wanted to uh, kind of bridge that gap. Okay. And, I, and LAPD at the time was going through this whole campaign where they were trying to be this kinder, gentler police department and the academy was supposed to be like um, like a college environment. It was supposed right. to be different. Yeah. And they advertised that they wanted blacks, they wanted minorities and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I wanted to be a part of that new plan. That, that was, you know, that's why I went in there. It totally makes sense. You're connecting the dots for us. And so yeah. you get in and you take on this responsibility. You're working in the community originally, right? Well, man, let's go back. Okay. Let me tell you, uh, my first day in the academy, and you know, I'm, you know, just uh, excited to be there, mm -hmm. start my new career. And the, my drill instructor looks at me and says, you know what? We don't need people like you on the, the police department. We have enough people like you in Nickerson Gardens. We don't wow. need you here in the academy. And for those who don't know, Nickerson Gardens is a project um, mm -hmm. in Watts. So, you know, right then it showed me how they saw me. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, their view of me, just their perception, just by looking at me. Right. And a red flag came on right then. So, uh, you know, I was like, OK, well, was this the right thing? You know, so after um, I graduated from the academy, uh, you have choices of where you go want to go. Mm -hmm. And I chose 
to work in the division where I, um, I grew up in and where I lived in that Southwest division. But I was um, transferred to West LA division, which is Brentwood, Bel Air, Palisades, um, you know, where yeah. the, the, the rich, you know? <laughs> um, so I, I did a year there and, um, it was a very tough, it was a very tough year, very tough probationary period. Um, my first training officer told me, he said, the first day that I was out in the field, he said, I'm not here to train you. I'm here to fire you because I think that all blacks and minorities, women are only on the job just because of affirmative action. You guys don't belong here. And my job is not to train you, it's to fire you. Welcome. How did how did you get how did you keep going? Because because it sounds like it was hit after hit after hit. How did you keep going? And what was the final mental health trigger that was the moment when you decided you had to write this book? Well, you're absolutely right. It was one hit after another. Mm -hmm. But the the way they treat you in the academy is that they put you through so much that you can't quit. Okay. You know, you go through so much and you can't say I can't stop now. They want me to quit. I can't quit even though I wanted to quit, you know, I really mm -hmm. wanted to. Um, but yeah, I went through so much and I know they didn't want me there. So I just couldn't do it. And I kept thinking that it would get better and get better, um, you know, as it went along. And, and actually at some point it did, it got better when I got off of um, my rookie year, you know, LAPD is kind of like, kind of like high school when you're a freshman, they pick on, they bully the, yeah. the new people, the rookies, they bully because they don't have a voice mm -hmm. and you have to do what they tell you to do and you have to get along just so you can make it on the department. So it's kind of like that. So once I got past that, um, I was, I was okay with it, but it changed me for the worse. I was very short tempered, um, very angry. I was angry at the department for what I went through. And um, as a result I was angry at citizens. Uh, I was I was just mad. I don't even know why. So wait, I want to pause you there because I want to. I really want to do a timeline. So you're in there about how long when you started to really feel that short fuse and that anger start to come up? That you know, probably six months or so. Wow. Out out on the out on the street. Wow. Uh, but then that was towards my the people that I worked with. Mm -hmm. Because um, what's what's ironic is that you know you hear people talk about the blue and how we're all family, and you know that's not the case. You know I, I hated a lot of the officers that I worked with. I hated all my training officers, um, but that was when I was a rookie. Now when I transferred, I transferred over after that. I transferred to Southwest Division, okay. which was in the black community. Um, a lot of crime, very uh, violent crimes, gang members, and then it became. Um, you know, kind of socially acceptable to be angry towards the people in the community because they expected it. They gave it to us. We gave it back. Mm. And, and, um, it, was, it was like a comfort level. You know, I was like, I was at home. You know, I was mad. I had issues. And I went and looked for other people who had issues. And, uh, you know, we jailed. Yeah. So tell me, you have issues. I, I really appreciate you saying that. And we're going to describe issues as mental health challenges. Were you feeling depressed? Were you feeling um, constantly agitated? Like, what were the symptoms when you say issues? Well, you know, I, I don't know the clinical issues. Yeah. And no, I, just and tell I us what you were feeling. Well, you know, I don't think I was depressed. Okay. You know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell if you're depressed, right? Right, true. But I know I had anger issues. Okay. Uh, very short-tempered. Right. I was short-tempered. And, and see, and this is the ironic part about it, is that um, one day I was in roll call and uh, some officers were, um, they were talking about some things in roll call. I don't specifically remember what it was, but I got upset. And I told the officers that, um, you know, that, that they didn't know what they were doing. And I got upset and I yelled at them and I cursed them and I challenged them, challenged the uh, sergeant and everything. And then once I was done, you know, I was thinking, you know, this was it. And I'm challenging everybody. And then when I was over, then when it was over, um, the sergeant came to me, um, the one that I had cursed out and said, you know, I thought you had, I thought you were soft, but dang, you know what you, um, I think I like you. So that's and rewarded. Then, that's rewarded. Um, yeah. And then other officers were like, Hey, you know, uh, let's work together, you know? Um, and so it was like, once they saw that, um, I had snapped and that was, you know, a different personality that I had, um, you know, I was loved. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's powerful. for the wrong reasons, you know? Yeah. That's powerful. So, so tell us about the moment or the incident 
that was the final trigger for you when you said, I got to get this out of my body. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And it culminated in your book. Well, it, it, was, it was a number of things. Um, I had seen police beatings. Um, you know, people we saw during the Rodney King beating that Rodney King beating was, was pretty horrific. But once I transferred over to Southwest Division, uh, the Rodney King beating on a scale of one to 10, 10 being worse, was probably about a five or six. Oh, my uh, God. It was like love taps, you know, compared to the things that I saw uh, as a police officer and in, in working in, you know, the minority community. So I saw these things and I wanted to express these things. And I was doing it gradually. I had contacted the L.A. Times because I wanted to kind of write a story to let people see what law enforcement was really about. They didn't uh, like my view. Uh, they thought my view was distorted. I had an interview with the uh, Washington Post. They came out here. They interviewed me for like two hours. They did an article, and it was like a half a paragraph that I was mentioned in it. And so, you know, I realized that uh, the media doesn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write a book. And if people were interested in it, it, it was it was. Uh, it was supposed to be a book of reference, you know. Yeah, yeah. If people are interested, they buy it. If not, no big deal. I went through, uh, tried to get a major publisher. At the time, you know, I was labeled as a police conspiracy theorist. So I went and I published the book myself. And it was just supposed to be just this, um, just this reference, no big deal type of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we start seeing all this stuff in the media and all the things that I wrote about, um, you know, all suddenly became true and became factual and um i became an expert based on things that i wrote uh you know just in just in passing you know? and so what happened what was the timeline to when you finally left the department and why um well i, I guess i didn't really answer your question either what but what happened was i was i had wrote this book mm -hmm. and um i was gonna probably publish it when i retired because okay. i knew that i would get some flack from it but there was a police officer. His name was Kevin Gaines. He's been all in the. He was all in the media. He got killed by another police officer, that was uh, a detective who was undercover and he was on duty. I mean, he was off duty. Detective was on duty, and he got uh, he got murdered um, by the detective. And then a number of other things happened. But that was like the last, the final straw. That hey, you know what? I may not make it. I may not make it till I retire. Yeah. Uh, I need I need to do this now. And so I wrote the book while I was on the job, which was, uh, I wouldn't advise anybody to do, but I wrote it while I was still a police officer because I didn't know if I was ever going to, um, you know, make it to retire. So uh, I decided to do that. That was a deciding incident yeah. that made yeah. me go ahead and publish this book because I was shopping it around still in, in hopes of having a big publisher. But I decided that I needed to do it because this information needed to be there in case I wasn't there. And so... I, I can't get past the Kevin Gaines, to be honest with you. I'm like feeling that deeply. I'm so sorry. That had to be horrific. And was the book the reason they fired you? It was the book was the main reason they that fired it. me. It's, uh, you know, I didn't have any problems before that. Um, what happened was when I wrote the book, they, I had an interview, internal affairs interview mm -hmm. that, that was two days. It lasted a total of 14 hours. Okay. They went over every line in the book, like, like a book report, wow. every single line. And what they did, they got me for, for allegations of, this is, this is what's crazy about it. They got me for allegations for not reporting misconduct when, uh, <sighs> when I was on the job. For wow. instance, I wrote about my training officer that I told you about. Yeah. Um, one day when I was in the car, he says that, uh, you know, cause he was very negative towards uh, blacks and towards women, he was especially women, but he said, you know what? He says, the only reason, uh, that we have women on this job is so they can give you oral sex between calls. That's yeah. the only reason. So I wrote that in my book. Oh, I love it. Oh, so that became an allegation of misconduct because I didn't report it, uh, that he said that wow. seven years ago. So that that's what so it turns out I had like 300 allegations of misconduct and they were based, they were all from my book and um it was because I didn't report things at that time you know even though I try to report some stuff I, uh, I got to tell you when I was um when Susie and I were watching an interview with uh Fox News and on Hidden Truth I was so yeah. frustrated I was so frustrated that they tried to make it sound like it was just you and you were a lone wolf seeing this. I was just completely 
I was angry. They minimized racism. They acted as if racism wasn't a thing when we know it is a big thing. Speak to the racism you experienced and witnessed in the police department. Well, I often talk about this. Um, you know, I mentioned my first, my first training officer and, uh, you know, my first training officer, he was white and he told me that, uh, you know, his job was not to train me. It was to, to, to get me fired, you know? And so I wrote about this in my book a lot about my, um, my first training officer and the things he would say uh, about blacks and just, just about minority. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we often uh, talk about racism, but they, the department really doesn't like women, you know, women is, uh, sexism is really bad uh, on the police department. Uh, It's not talked about much, but uh, you know, those are the things that you experience when you knew you hear your training officer talk about things like that. Um, you know, there's different comments we, all the time in like um, roll call. They would make comments about the uh, blacks and stuff. And and as a black police officer, you know, you can't go anywhere and make a formal complaint that you have to handle things yourself. So that was one of the things that made me angry as a police officer, too, is that I was always try- had to stand up for, um, you know, for the underdog, for women, for yeah. blacks. Uh, you know, they would make these comments and uh, I would have to always uh, step in and say, hey, you know, you know, that's wrong. You know, what you guys are saying is wrong. And, and there was just a lot of comments. And then the thing is, is that you said something about how you would be you were surprised or I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something to the effect that it was always surprising when black officers acted the same way that these the white officers did in this kind of racist way. And I feel like that has something to do with their own self-hatred. Like they're dying to fit in. And so they have to become a part of the oppressive system to show that they're trying to be one of them. Do you think that makes sense? It makes sense. And, you know, I've often thought about that. And when I wrote my book, um, you know, I didn't want to address, address it in a, um, uh, in that light of race, of racism. Because for every uh, every time you hear one black person says that the, there's racism on the job, you'll come back and you'll hear another a black person say it's the yep. best job they ever had. And, right. you know, they're all their friends and, you know, we're a family. So when I wrote my book, I wrote it from a cultural standpoint, which cannot be disputed. Right. And that is that there's a culture of violence and it's accepted and it's loved and um and so, and that whole culture of being rude and, you know, it, it's just, a, it's, it's kind of like a culture that, that police officers have. They're very negative. They're very rude, um, you know, yeah, racist yeah, comments yeah. and stuff, very violent, quick tempered. So that's what I try to address uh, in my book, because I, I thought that that would be something that would be longstanding and couldn't be uh, disputed, you know. Yeah. Right? Totally makes sense. Susie, you want to Jump on board. Wow. I'm just so taking I in am your too. story. I'm sorry I got lost <laughs> in it. And, and I'm really thinking about your book being your truth and that your truth, which was based in fact, was completely invisibilized and that you became victimized by your own truth. Mm-hmm. Why do you think having been in the force and now being outside of it and watching everything that's going on, why do you think that police, and we've all seen it, that police officers still today feel like they can get away with the police brutality or with brutality and murder? Well, police officers don't, um, they don't feel like they can get away with police brutality and murder. They know they can, Mm -hmm. right? And they know they can. They know if they say the right things, uh, during their arrest, write the right things on their arrest report, say that they're in fear for their life. Mm-hmm. Fear, uh, you know, they know they can get away with it. You know, absolutely. They know they can get away with it. There's no doubt in their mind. There's no question. Um, one of the things that we went through in, um, uh, in roll call was we went over ways to uh, circumvent people's civil rights. Wow. You know, people, th- people think that police officers are just ignorant, drug, high school dropouts and stuff, but uh, they are experts in uh, circumventing your civil rights. They practice it. They rehearse it. It's a recipe. Wow. It's a secret recipe that has been passed down, you know, for generations, like the Colonel's chicken, you know, yeah. it's just a mm-hmm. recipe that's good every time. And, yeah. um, you know, we had our watch commander would have a big, uh, a, a big clipboard with police reports on it. 
very generic police reports, male, black, between five, five, six, three, white t-shirt, medium build, bald head, whatever, whatever description you want to find. And um, we use those for uh, probable cause or reasonable suspicion to stop. So if I stopped you and I said, um, you know, you fit a description in your mind, you're like, I don't fit no description, but I'm telling you by the time you get to the station, you will fit a description. You know, there's a description for you somewhere in there. So it, it's something that's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's something that has been in, in the works for, for generations. It's not just by chance. And police officers know that. And uh, one of the things that another component that I talk about a lot is that, uh, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything like you guys. I've taken a couple of psychology classes. Uh, I used to work for D.D. Hirsch. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, after I uh, after I left, because my first major, which was ironic, I don't want to want to ju- uh, get off the subject, but my first major in college was psychology. Okay. And I okay. Had, I had a group. It shows had, up in your work. Well, so, so check this out. So I had a group dynamic uh, discussion, mm-hmm. a class, and we talked and everything. And so my professor told me I had a problem empathizing with people. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, a real problem. Yeah, well, it was perfect for LAPD. Yes. You know, it was a yep. perfect segue for LAPD. Exactly. Uh, so um that's really interesting, Brian. Uh, so one of the things is that uh when I wrote it, I kind of referred back to my psychology days, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So what the things that I found is that um, you know, speaking for myself mainly is that uh, violence was addicting. It, it was like habit. Well, that's what I was just going to yeah. ask you about. Because you say over and over again right. that cops are addicted to violence. They are. It's it's adrenaline rush. Um, when you are chasing somebody and you get to the end of a pursuit and you have a fight, you beat them down. It's, it's like a, it's, it's a rush that goes through you. And police officers, some police officers look for that every night. And um, like I said, I knew where to go to to satisfy that because you have you have individuals you have great gang members, which is another issues. Uh, they have all kind of problems too, and, and it's, it's ironic. When I worked at D.D. Hirsch, I worked at a residential uh, crisis facility, mm-hmm. and in that facility were teachers, gang members, and police officers. And I was like, "Whoa, this is like you know." <laughs> <laughs> not a good combination <laughs> that, that's deep you, you know and so um we know gang members had issues cops have issues and if you want to be violent you go find those people who want to be violent with you wow. and what we're seeing now is that uh you know c- cops are just so addicted to it and they have issues that they can't control it you have you have body cams you have cameras surveillance cameras on buildings everybody has a cell phone that videos and people and police officers can't control it they can't stop it they're still violent they still use excessive force in front of everybody because they can't control it Uh, but and and those are the people who are like really sick yeah there's a lot of officers that work at night on the graveyard shift that you'll never see what happens and and, you know gang members get beat up all the time and people who are um who are considered less desirable, mm-hmm. they get beat up all the time too. Like George, like George Floyd, you know, that happened to take place in the daytime, but they didn't feel anything for him. And other officers that I know don't feel sorry for him either. You know, that's, you know, that's a part of society that uh, it's acceptable to be uh, brutal too, you know. So JD and I have talked about this a lot there are a lot of veterans and extremists that join the force. Do you think that that's a catalyst for some of the addiction? I do. I mean, I, I, I do. That hiring pool that they hire from, they love uh, veterans. One of the reasons they love veterans is because they don't question authority. They already know how to just follow, um, follow commands. Oh, wow. I never thought of it like that. You know, okay. In fact, my um, training officer and my captain that I talked to said that they didn't like people who uh, went to college first, who had college degrees first, because they always question um, authority and, and they're always trying to uh, come up with some kind of uh, philosophical discussion about, you know, what's going on instead of just following orders. And they love military people because they follow orders, whether they're right or wrong. You know, they follow the chain of command. 
and they stick to the train chain of command. And then a lot of them um, have PTSD before they come on the job. So it's like a, they're ticking time bombs, you know? Right. Right. Oh, oh that just is, is hitting me. Um, in your book or maybe one of the interviews, you said that you knew of at least seven police officers who went to prison. Yeah, is, number, it, oh, I'm sorry. is it fair to say that you were part of the collusion since you were there and witnessed significant corruption under your watch? No. What do you say to people who say that to you? Well, the, the thing is, um, you know, I had mentioned um, before that I had went to some of my uh, supervisors to make complaints about officers. But the thing is, the, the, the sergeants and stuff, they go camping and hiking with the patrol officers. And so, uh, you know, they're friends and they're, they're not going to take a complaint. And the way, the way, this is the way LAPD works. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, uh, Christopher Dorner. Christopher Dorner was a police officer yep. uh, years ago who went on this killing rampage. Yep. And he talked about how the LAPD tries to ruin your life. If you're a whistleblower. Well, this is the way that the LAPD works. How, how law enforcement in general works. It's not like corporate America where in corporate America, if I come and say that you sexually harassed me or you tried to, you did something wrong, there would be an investigation. And if it wasn't proven, then they would maybe move you or do something like that. Okay. Law enforcement doesn't work like that. If I make a complaint against you and I can't prove it or they can't prove it, you get fired. You get fired for giving false information to a supervisor. And you can get um, indicted because you're lying during the during an official investigation. So it it it's not in your best interest unless you just have like absolute fact and some witnesses. Even still, then because and as I, I referenced Christopher Dorner because he complained that his training officer used excessive force. The person who um, was the victim complained. That person had a father that complained and another neighbor that was a witness that also complained and they still found that officer innocent and fired Christopher Dorner. So it sounds like LAPD breeds criminals and the addiction feeds police brutality. And wow, I'm just wondering emotionally how you dealt with cover-ups and being part of it, what that must've felt like every day. Well, police officers suppress their emotions and their morals. One thing about a police officer is that you learn that when you're on the job, you don't represent your own self. Uh, you, you do a lot of things that aren't um, part of your character and, and aren't a part of your views. You just do your job. You don't put anything personal on it. So police officers really don't have a lot of emotions. At least they suppress that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so I didn't feel anything when I was on the police department. I was numb. I didn't feel anything. And I had wrote in my book, too, about the nightmares that I had. Man, I had some nightmares when I was a police officer because, like, everything that I suppressed and, um, you know, that I hid usually came out, you know, when I was asleep, you know, mm-hmm. in my dreams. Right. But, you know, externally, police officers don't have, um, I don't know if you know any, but they, they just turn off all those emotions. It's a job that's not meant for, uh, you know, for humans. You go to a dead, you go to a scene and there's a, some kid lying there dead, been shot in the face or whatever. A normal person would feel sorry for that person, would, you know, grieve, feel sad. Police officers is just part of the job. They go to work, start interviewing people, you know, cordoning off the scene. It's, it's just duty. It's just one detail after another and you don't feel anything. Never, You don't feel anything about anything, you know. Wow. And yet, you do because the response is not you personally, but the response is the anger, the violence, the addiction to the violence. It shows up somewhere. It's got to go somewhere. It, it does. And I had a partner who told me that he couldn't um, go to sleep unless he had uh, two six packs of beer you know, when he came home. Now, a lot of police officers are, are, are alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And I assume, you know, there, there are some that are probably addicted to other drugs too right. as well, but they don't test, they don't test for them. But police officers are screwed up. I mean, I mean, really, you know, the high rate of suicide, divorce, uh, all their kids are bad, don't like them, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of them have some messed up lives. 
Yeah. And the ones that you see who are uh, like great husbands and uh, great fathers, it's usually after like two t- two tries or three tries, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I've yeah. noticed yeah. that. Yeah. Or or on TV shows. Right. Uh, right. So, <laughs> right? so it, it, it's, a, it's a tough job psychologically. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of factors in there. And, uh, you know, police brutality is just one of them. I won't say it's just a small part of it, but it, it's it's a part of, it's just a part of that whole breakdown, that whole, um, you know, just trying to cope. You'll see police officers that work out all the time. You know, they do a lot of excessive stuff, buy a lot of jet skis, a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. And they, they don't even really see it. A lot of stuff to compensate for for what they're hiding, the emotion and the pain that they're hiding. Uh, Do you personally, Brian, wish or think that more police officers should come out and speak against the department and what they see? That's a great question. I, because I'm, you know, kind of torn on that. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, A lot of police officers, I mean, police officers need jobs. They need to pay their rent. They need to support their family and their you know, live stress-free, as, as much stress-free as possible. If you come out and speak uh, against the police department, because you're either for them or against them, you can't, um, you know, like in my book, I have some great things that I say about police officers. Um, and then, you know, I talk about some of my partners that were really just great people. And then I talk about some negative stuff. But if you say one negative thing, then you're negative and you're against the police department. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and the department will go and um, pull out all stops to get rid of you. And to make your career um, horrible. And one thing about law enforcement is that there's so many things that go on each day that you will make a mistake. And so you need somebody by you to stand by you and to speak for you and be on your side to vouch for you. And if you don't have that, then it makes your job really that much difficult because um, you know you're going to make mistakes. And so that's I. So to answer your question. No, I would not uh, recommend someone to come out and speak against the police department. I just watched a whole documentary on a cult that wasn't named a cult. It was named something else. But this feels very much like a cult. And if you think differently or anything and you go away, then you are now the target. They will come after you. But, you know, that's interesting that you mentioned it as a cult because um, after I was terminated from the police department, um, I lost all my friends that were mm-hmm. police. Well, most of them that were, um, you know, police officers. Uh, we, I used to go to police parties, police barbecues, police picnics. You know, everything was police. And I was suddenly it was gone and my whole social network was gone. And one thing I remember in the academy was they continued to tell you that uh, LAPD is your family, um, law enforcement is your family, and you need to exclude and get rid of all those people who aren't part of your family. Um, You know, if you have anybody who's been arrested or family members don't understand you, which is true, Mm -hmm. and you need to uh, disassociate yourself with all that and embrace your LAPD family. And, uh, you know, that kind of sounds like a cult. And um, when when I left LAPD and the circumstances I left, I didn't have any of that. And I quickly realized, uh, well, all that is gone. And and I think that that's why I've had a lot of partners who were fired from LAPD that committed suicide. And I think it's because all their, uh, you know, just their whole social network and everything was gone. You just you just segued nicely into the next part, which was, and you already mentioned Christopher Donner. I just felt his story. I felt his story. It was criminal what happened to him. And all you hear about is, you know, the not all cops are bad. And here's a guy who tried to do the right thing. And until he lost it and went on a rampage, you know, he was left to look like the worst person in the world. And I felt like that was horrible. And you mentioned something else that happens, which is police suicide, which is at such a high level right now. You know, it's like Christopher Donner went the suicide by um, murder route and other police officers are killing themselves. What's, what's your response to that? Because given what you're saying, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, my purpose in writing my book and talking about LAPD was to make improvements to improve uh, the relationship with the community and to have police officers try to exercise their demon and become better people. 
And I thought that me coming out and talking about everything um, would give people uh, the courage and, and, you know, kind of light a fire so that they would uh, do some things to change themselves, their family, change the job. Uh, you, you know, I, you know, I wanted to make a difference. So I tried, I tried to hit different, different uh, subjects and different topics so that maybe I can touch people in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was my purpose. And, um, you know, I had wished that maybe Christopher Dorner had read my book yeah. and maybe that he could have, uh, did some reflecting before he went on this rampage and realized that, uh, you know, what was, what was being done to him by the department and what the effects were and what the goal was, you know, the end goal is just to protect the, the police department. They want to protect, uh, just that the image that they think they have or that they want to present, you know, just being this wholesome department, no problems or whatever. And then, you know, they just want to pr- pr- uh, protect that image and they'll do whatever they can. They'll go after you and they'll do whatever they can. <clears throat> and one of the things that I talk about is that um, when you make a complaint against the, the police department and this is police officers or just a civilian, the first thing they do is they attack the person who's making the complaint. They go after you run your rap sheet, run your parking ticket so they can come up with an excuse saying, oh, she made a complaint because she got a parking ticket last week. That's why she made this complaint against the police department. Or this officer made a, uh, a complaint against another officer because last week he came in late or whatever. You know, so, you know, that's, that's the tactic that they use and they do go after you. It's not, it's not something that uh, is speculated. It's the truth and, and then we see it. You know, there's uh, a lot of officers getting fired lately for saying, for speaking up. Have you reached out to any of them, made contact with any of them as uh, just kind of like networking? I have. I, I have. In fact, um, I have a, a little pod, a podcast that I do. My oh. intentions were to interview officers who went through the same experience as yeah. I did. And I made contact with a lot of officers who've written books, who were fired and so forth but they don't want to talk about it. They still do not want to talk about it. And I learned that, um, which I wasn't really aware of at the time, but a lot of officers have family members who are on the department. Now, they may have a son or daughter in the department. They may have a father-in-law that's on the department, okay. you know, a wife, some kind of connection. And they don't want to jeopardize that. They don't want to put their- They're scared. Yeah. They're, they're afraid. You know, they, they are afraid. They don't want- to get uh, you know their sibling or whoever is attached to the police department uh, to get them in trouble, and I had a, and I had an officer tell me uh, he he had um, won a major lawsuit with uh, the police department, and he just straight out told me that hey um, you know my my uh, my child is on the department, and I don't want any retaliation. Um, you know, and so there is a reason to be afraid. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely um, a reason to be afraid. And uh, police officers don't just try to fire you. They try to ruin your life. They try to put you in, in jail. They try to find a reason uh, to, to say that you committed a crime so you can go to prison and ruin your life. It's not just, uh, firing is not just good enough for them. You know, there's this uh, police officer on social media and he says, you know, he worked in some of the most crime-written areas as a police. And he said he thinks the problem today is that the culture is to militarize the department. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about. You- I do. I do. I, I believe that to a certain extent. I mean, there are, are certain situations where um, you do have violent criminals that, uh, I mean, you know, you have to be yeah. just, just as violent, of course. But, uh, you know, a lot of stuff that we see um, that we're seeing now with uh, social media, and with uh, video cameras and stuff, they're just average people that are getting. Um, That's brutal. the problem. And the shooting you know, in the back. We're right. not talking about somebody who has a gun, but then you see them arrest white people and they have guns and are cursing them out, swinging at them. And the same thing doesn't happen. That's the problem. Yeah, right. That, that is, that is the problem. And, um, you know, so now we're seeing people who are just everyday average people that are getting murdered and and beaten up. And, um, so in that aspect, yeah, you have to, um, you know, there has to be change. You know, people are talking about defunding the police. Uh, you know, there's, there has, there has to be a change because there has to be a change because one of the things that strikes me is that they always, in one of your interviews, they talked about, um, 
you know, the most crime ridden areas. And they always referred to black and Latino communities as, you know, being the most crime ridden, but they never talk about the level of poverty, the lack of access, you know, the lack of access and poverty breeds crime. You know, we don't look at how systems have failed people who are poor and, and crime comes out of that. I think it's something that's missed. What do you think about that? Well, it is missed. And I, I think it's a fact that uh, law enforcement is not what uh, suppresses crime or stops crime. It's, uh, it's, other, it's other activities, it's other, other things, other components in the community. Um, people being involved, uh, um, coaching, sports, things that keep people active, jobs. Uh, you know, it's not, law enforcement is not going to do it. Right. It is not going to do it. And, and it's a fact. Um, I worked, I started working uh, in LAPD in 89, which at that time, LAPD, the city of LA was the uh, murder capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we see now, we, we hear stories about what's taking place in Chicago, but LAPD was twice as worse as, right. as Chicago is now. The homicide rate was, was, was twice as high. And, um, you know, we had, at the time, it was uh, Daryl Gates. We had different things like Operation Hammer. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that one, where they brought all the officers. Mm -hmm. They brought all the officers from everywhere and put them in South LA, and they arrested people for spitting on the sidewalk, wrote Mm -hmm. tickets, for all kind of stuff, and it didn't help. It just is really, it it wasn't the solution. And Daryl Gates was big on that whole, uh, yeah, militarizing the police, and uh, that those things did not help. And it was the social programs that helped, and you know, the job marketing increased and so forth. But, you know, LAPD, all they can do is kind of hold serve. Uh, law enforcement, all they can do is hold serve to, to actually, to win the point, you got, there's other things that have to be done. You know, I'm going to throw it to Susie because she's going to do a word association with you. But I wanted to ask you one thing. How, how did you deal with your mental health? How did you get to be this stable, grounded guy now who's an advocate and doesn't seem to be afraid of repercussions for telling your truth? How did you get here? Well, that's interesting because I, I never really thought about it, but um, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. I tell you, when I um, got fired, the first thing I did was I took my gun loose, took it all apart and put it in a drawer and different pieces because I had had a, a partner that I worked with as a female officer. She was fired and she committed suicide. Um, I had another friend of mine that went into the parking lot of his job and he wasn't fired. He, he had a bad relationship and he committed suicide. So I didn't want to see my guns. I took all my guns, took them away. I didn't want to see them. Um, you know, that wasn't going to be me. Um, and what really worked for me was that when I, uh, became a police officer. I had work experience. So I had experience working in a bank okay. as a manager. I had a um, sales experience. I had experience working because I volunteered at D.D. Hirsch all the time. And I worked there while I was still a police officer. So I had, I had a lot of things to draw on. So LAPD was not my life. LAPD was never my life. You know, it was, um, I mean, it was very important to me, but I had other things. Uh, my mother kept me grounded. My mother, um, her uncle back in the day got beat up by police officers and um, they, uh, his name was Uncle Bubba. <laughs> and uh, the police officer stopped him. He was uh, drinking one night. They took his money uh, and beat him up. So she's always called me every morning before I went to work and say, hey, you know, be a good cop. Don't be one of them bad cops that beat up your Uncle Bubba. Oh, that's great. You know, so my mother always uh, kept me grounded. They didn't want, my mother didn't want me to be a police officer. But she was very supportive, and uh, she always, um, you know, tried to keep me grounded and tell me to be a good cop. And, and what's funny is that when I told her I had been fired, she said, well, I didn't, never wanted you to be a police officer anyway, but I didn't want your ass to get fired either. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that she said that wasn't the point. You know, that, that wasn't, you know, our goal. That's great. But, um, you know, she was very supportive of me, uh, my church. Mm-hmm. You know, I leaned on my church. Uh, you know, I, I always, even when I w- went to, um, when I was a police officer, I always attended church. And I wrote in my book that even though I was still grounded spiritually and went to church and sung in a choir, I would go to church and I have like three guns on me. Um, wow. You know, at church, because I, you know, I didn't feel comfortable, didn't feel safe. 
you know, so, you know, part of that whole mental health thing. And I talked about how, um, you know, even when I was at home and I went to the restroom, I took my gun with me to the restroom. Wow. So, like give, so giving up my gun was a big thing. That was, that was, yeah. that was a big thing. You know, that, that was a, a big, that was the evidence. Yeah. That, that was a big thing in my life. You know, just put my gun away. And, um, I started to lean more towards the people who, uh, well, I really didn't have a choice, but to go back to my old friends that weren't in law enforcement. Oh, good for you. You know, just go back to that whole social network and, Good for you. You know, so that that's what kept me grounded. Uh, Christopher Dorner talked about he lost everything. Uh, LAPD wasn't everything to me. That's heartbreaking. Take it away, Susie. Okay, I'm going to shift gears and I'm going to ask you um, to just tell us what comes up for you when one word, when I throw out these words, okay? Okay, I want to say one thing too, though, yeah. um, which is kind of interesting is that as a police officer, as a former police officer, I, my psyche goes back and forth. You know, mm-hmm. I, I may give something that associates with me now. Yeah. Something that associates Whatever with me. Whatever comes up. You know, no, that's fine. Uh, that's uh, fine. Okay. Whatever comes up. Yeah. There's no rules. Okay. Okay. Privilege. Uh, law enforcement. Police officers have. Oh, John, just one word. Law enforcement. Police officers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Brianna Taylor criminal in in the sense I, can i clarify just sure yeah, go okay, in, in criminal criminal means the police officers that committed yeah. the murder um committed a crime I, i've been in shootings and just because someone fires a shot at an officer or fires a shot at you does not give you the green light to just randomly shoot right. anyone anyone in the area exactly mm-hmm. memory that what was it memory memory <clears throat> selective selective memory <laughs> change impossible oh wow say more about that yeah please i just think that uh you know we're talking about police brutality right now we're talking about um murders i don't think it will change i, I just i don't think it I don't think there's enough people in power that want it changed. I know police officers don't want change. Uh, I often write about the riots when I was in the riots. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, police officers don't care about riots. Riots are good for them. You know, they like riots. It's like going to war. It's like going to war. They have stories to tell their kids, their grandkids. You know, they. Um, when I was a police officer doing the riots in 1992, I made so much money. I paid off my car. I bought a 12-person jacuzzi. I bought a big screen TV, and that was all for my riot check. And my partner... Wait, were, I don't understand. Oh, I, I, some, I don't understand that. Uh, well, because you work overtime. Overtime. Because you have riots, oh. you have protests. These police officers, um, when you see Black Lives Matter protests, you're seeing these officers, they're making overtime. These officers who are standing by... We're and, paying and they're getting paid. They're getting paid overtime, uh, extra hours. And like during the riots, I worked about like 18 hours a day. And during the riots and then afterwards, you know, just for, you know, for protection. But they work a lot of hours and they love working these hours because they're getting paid for it. They're getting, they're right. getting overtime for it, you know. So, so you mentioned Black Lives Matter. What, what do you think the movement has done to affect change? Well, I think it's interesting because I see more police officers being indicted than I've ever seen in my life. But, uh, and I okay. think a, a couple of them are going to prison. But we don't want that. We want police officers to stop killing people and to stop beating people. We, you know, we don't just want to hold them accountable. We want them to stop. Absolutely. And that's where a change comes in because I don't think it's going to stop. I, I just, I don't think police officers can help it. In fact, I know they can't. And so when you talk about, well, when people talk about defunding law enforcement, put the money somewhere else, social programs, the things that we know work, what do you think about that? I think that's great. However, you can't, I don't think it's a good idea to have the city and law enforcement agencies control where that money goes. They make bad decisions and you know that Mm. friends of 
city council members and politicians are going to all suddenly pop up with these nonprofit organizations and come up with fake solutions. And, and, and you yeah. know, we saw that uh, once before so right. when the Christopher Commission came up and had mm. all these things. You had all these civil rights people come up with all these plans that they mm. uh, just came up real quick and they're friends of politicians, friends of city councilmen, yes. and they don't really have a plan. And so that part really uh, worries me. You know, you're talking about a corruption that is so deep, it's closely connected to systemic racism and oppressive systems that just know how to get over. So it's, it's very daunting. And I, I hear you when you say you don't think change can occur. It's scary and it's sad, but it's very true. And I appreciate your honesty. What's, what's next for you? What are you doing these days? Oh, I, I do so many things. I write. I'm still writing. I ghost write. I have a podcast. Um, I coach, I coach track at a high school. Oh, that's awesome. Um, my kids, one of my sons is in med school. Uh, another one, my daughter's um, running track in college. Uh, so I go and see her track meets. Um, and then my other son, he's an entrepreneur. So, I mean, I, I'm just busy. Oh, I, you are busy. That's awesome. Brian, for people who want to tune in, what's the name of your podcast? Where, the, where can they find you? Uh, you can go on YouTube and just uh, search Brian S. Bentley. It's all under there. Um, my books as well. You can find out about my, uh, my books that I've wrote. I've written, actually written three books. Uh, one okay. book that I don't talk about very often is, is called Hit Me Once, Hit Me Twice. And it's a book about domestic violence. Mm. people would always ask me what are the causes of gang members and and crime and stuff like that and i would say that one of the factors is uh you know relationships i see a lot of people who are uh hurt in relationships and um they don't want to go back to that family because there's a lot of violence and stuff yes. that's why they're on the street so i wrote a book um to, to try to help young people about that and it's called hit me once hit me twice that's great. Wow, Brian, you are such an amazing person. Thank Seriously, you. I mean that sincerely. Did we finish I, the word association? I was like, you're really yeah, you did that. it, man. That, you like that. Yeah. You made it happen. I was like, <laughs> man, you know. You made it happen. You made us think while you were associating. <laughs> Brian, if you had the power to change anything in the world, you had the power to change anything in the world, what would it be? Oh, just, uh, you know, I want people to, um, respect one another, no hate towards one another, you know, love. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank well, we're feeling nothing but love for you, man. You're yeah. awesome. Thank you so much for your well, patience. Thanks for having us me. Organize and get on here. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, I waited a long time. You sure did. <laughs> you were, thank you for waiting. You were very patient. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back again because I feel like we just scratched the surface. I think there's so much more we can talk about. I yeah. look forward. To that. I, I do too. And, uh, you know, with you guys background, I really would like to get into this whole, uh, you know, the psychological uh, yes. effects of law enforcement and, and, you know, what these officers feel when, when they beat up people and uh, why they gravitate yes. to it. You know? Yeah, that sounds awesome. We'll definitely have to do that again. And thanks again for coming on. Oh, thank you. We're excited to have these conversations that are going to be difficult and uncomfortable, but important. Please subscribe and join us.